Hello, and welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT in Toronto. Thank you very much for listening to this. This. <laughs> you can say what you like, but real skill. I never lack, lack, lack. We are uh, David Franklin, Erwin Hostetter, with Stefan Christian, Erwin Hostetter, and Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour. And Stefan is interviewing Emma McIntosh, whose middle names I'm unaware of, about uh, more Doug Ford stuff at the end of the show. I realize that it's been exactly a year since the lockdown came to Toronto. So thank you for everyone who's risked your life to uh, maintain this ship. Um, what about you, Lauren? Something I've been thinking about this week is an article that came out in La Presse that indicated that Trudeau is going to pursue a late spring election. And sort of my immediate thoughts upon reading this were just how cynical it is from a political standpoint. To me, it's an example of this politician and this party really putting electoral success and prioritizing having complete control of the House over any sort of cross-party cooperation and over any sort of adequate pandemic response and sort of seeing that through and putting the well-being of Canadians over their control of the house. And then of course it, it also immediately made me think about what an election would mean for for Bill C12 which I which I know I can't shut up about but because the bill has been stalled for over 100 days at this point it's waiting to go to a second reading has been waiting to go to a second reading for for months now since since kind of the, the holiday break and it's stalled enough that getting it through committee and senate by the end of the summer for a fall pass is already like a bit of a hail mary so the fact that there could be an election in, in the late spring now instead of fall just means that Bill C-12 has the potential to just completely die on the paper. And then who knows what will happen with any sort of accountability commitment because Trudeau and his cabinet and his party aren't particularly good at following through on their election promises in the best of times, let alone when it's something that they have allowed to languish and then for it to be canceled because of an election. I, I, I just I can't see them going back to this immediately, if at all. If they're saying the timeline is already too short for us to have a 2025 target, I can't imagine what would happen if C12 dies because of an election and then the whole process is pushed forward another couple of years. So I'm just really disappointed and upset for all of the implications of a potential spring election, especially when it would be something that Trudeau is calling and it wouldn't actually be the result of um, a non-confidence vote or interference on the part of either the Conservatives or the NDP or the Bloc or the Greens. Yeah, so just to clarify, Bill C-12 is the Liberals' entire net-zero climate plan that they unveiled uh, last year, and Lauren is saying they have now let it languish, and the entire thing is at risk if Trudeau goes ahead with this election. I was thinking about ways that people can sort of see themselves in the solutions, ways that people can sort of see themselves in the response, and ways that people can get get out there and, and, and be a part of things. And I'm pulling from Adrian Marie Brown's emergent strategy concept, which is about how to do strategy, how to have deep connections. And what she really focuses on is to form these sort of deep connections with those you're organizing with, that that should be your 
primary focus uh, to then create lasting change is to sort of be deeply individually with each other. To me, if you're looking for ways to get involved, you know, look for your closest mutual aid group, look for your closest organization that are doing something that you approve of, and just start building those relations. And I think that's the simplest way to sort of start doing that. I really love that. That's so practical. And it's uh, obviously a bunch of people read Emergent Strategy a few years ago, and I think people really sort of hopped on that bandwagon. And then, and then like with all sort of trends in anything, let alone in organizing, people kind of end up leaving those concepts by the wayside at a certain point. But I think it's something that would be really good for a lot of us to revisit, especially um, given COVID and the influx of people who are interested in getting involved at the community level and making changes. Like I just had a friend this past week text me being like, hey, Lauren, if I care about climate change, how do I get involved? And I was like, well, baby, what a question. What a lovely thing to think about this week. Thanks for buoying my spirit. With the sheer amount of food and material output humanity writ large produces every year, there's no good reason for anyone to go hungry, which is why it's very good that the Democrats have passed a bill that could at least temporarily cut child poverty in half in the United States, will give a lot of people better health care and bail out state and local governments. It's a lovely allocation of resources towards people who actually need it. Social Democrats also won big recently in Nevada, so with growing progressive pull in the Democratic Party, it's possible that the Biden administration doesn't stop here and works to make these changes a permanent part of American society, so that poor people don't have to go hungry or move into motels and shelters simply to keep their families together. Of course, the Democrats internally argued each other down from the originally higher stimulus checks they had proposed and decided not to provide a $15 minimum wage, even though most Americans want and need these things. The minimum wage in the United States is in fact much lower today than it was in the 1960s, and if workers were properly respected and fairly treated, the minimum wage would be $24 an hour because it would be rising in step with the productivity of the economy. The more wealth workers collectively create, the more they would be compensated. It's especially absurd that wage increases should be difficult to enact right now, since low-wage workers constitute a large portion of the people who have been risking their lives to keep our society running during the pandemic. The final version of the bill was apparently supported by a majority of registered Republicans, which is why it's weird that not a single Republican in Congress voted in favor of it. The Republicans are still on their hobby horse about Democrats being evil, out-of-control socialists, which shouldn't be seen as a laughable quirk, but as a strategy for delegitimizing anything not done specifically by the Republican Party, as they consolidate their embrace of the racist totalitarian wave of the new right wing that tried to hunt down lawmakers with violent mob justice in January. Donald Trump himself was conceivably hoping that Mike Pence would be taken by the mob and possibly killed. It's possible that a significant fraction of the new spending could end up in the hands of people who definitely don't need it, like what happened here in Canada last year, when the huge telecom companies Rogers, Bell, and TELUS collected over $240 million from the Canadian government's relief program. 
Rogers and Bell received the great majority of that sum and still laid people off while paying their shareholders more money. Big telecom companies like Shaw and Rogers have lobbied Canadian federal officials an average of twice daily over the past year. If COVID relief and economic recovery plans head in the old direction of putting money in the hands of large private corporations and commercial banks, rather than giving money and jobs directly to people and healing the environment, we are going to see more people convinced of Trump's imminent return as the 19th president of the United States, the first legitimate president since Ulysses S. Grant, having finally and triumphantly played his secret ace in the hole and vaporizing Nancy Pelosi back to her ancient alien mole colony on Mercury. We have been collectively gaslighted for years about climate change and the ability of international financial capitalism to create wealth for regular people, and we are looking for someone to blame. The real economy never got better for the average person after 2008, but the pseudo-economy on the stock exchange has continued to wildly enrich an international class of oligarchs. Nihilistic politicians will continue to use this anger to scapegoat whoever needs to be scapegoated to maintain power for the powerful. And if all you want is power, it doesn't matter who you scapegoat. Immigrants, Muslims, anyone who looks vaguely Chinese, feminists, socialists, tiny house warriors or braided warriors standing in the way of the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline. This is why common human solidarity and recognition of each other's humanity, no matter what our background, is so important right now. But we can't just believe it, we have to feel it. We have to actually feel the truth of our shared humanity. A rare thing happened recently. An American publication took up a niche Canadian issue when Nicholas Kuznets published an article in Inside Climate News about Alberta's campaign against environmental activists. He highlighted how Zepra Berman received hideous threats after Jason Kenney announced his $30 million inquiry into these foreign-funded anti-Alberta environmental radicals. Kuznets quotes Martin Olzinski of EcoJustice while referencing Keystone XL, arguing, quote, As things start to get more heated, as you start to see the U.S. government and president start to take more action, Threatened interests, I think, will reach for this playbook. Here in Ontario, Premier Doug Ford is trying to destroy wetlands to make way for more warehouses, probably because he believes that private developers need to be free to create economic growth so that we can all prosper. But we don't need to let rich people dictate what kinds of things will be built. We can democratically plan how to live in a resource-depleted planet. A French Citizens' Assembly that was appointed to address the climate crisis recently chastised their government for going back on its promise to implement many of the Assembly's suggestions. But it's still an example of regular people being elevated to a position of influence in order to plan how to thrive while not destroying the planet. Teenagers were out in droves last month in the UK to fight a new coking coal mine. Youth activists in Australia launched a lawsuit against their government to try to stop them from approving new fossil fuel projects. Young land defenders from the Sequepink First Nation have been putting their bodies on the line to fight TMX. Climatologist Michael Mann 
recently contended that now is the best chance we've had in 20 years to turn the climate crisis around, largely because of the way teenagers have risen up. Doomism plays into the hands of the people preventing change. A recent article in Grist about climate anxiety sought advice from three activists about how to cope. Olatunjio Boy Reed said, quote, It's not going to take months. It's going to take decades to fix the condition that we find ourselves in. And there's no one person that's going to save this planet. I don't care who it is. Your idea will contribute. It's one of so many on this planet that's going to make a dent in this, in where we go from here. Margaret Klein Salomon said, quote, I know this is a very strange thing to say, but I feel so grateful to be doing this work. It's given me a source of meaning in my life. Before I got into this work, I was just very self-involved. I was big into my resume and personal achievement, academic achievement. I was preoccupied with how I looked and whether people liked me. All these kinds of questions that are honestly so boring. It's so much better to feel like I'm a vessel. I'm a part of this mission. We're seeing a sort of shift on what people believe the role of government should be. You know, we see this in the response to COVID. You know, the fact that 50% of Republicans support a spending bill of nearly $2 trillion means that that bill and that government spending is more popular than the belief in elections. I mean, Morning Consult found that only 32% of Republicans would admit that the last elections were free and fair, meaning that this bill is somehow 20%, I think the number is actually 58%, I think it's 26% more popular than the belief that the people doing it should be allowed to be doing it at all. And not only that, but we're seeing the Republican senators who voted against it are now turning around and bragging about how it will help people. You know, today, we record this on Wednesday, March 10th, Mississippi Senator, Senator Roger Wicker tweeted out supporting about all the support that independent restaurants would get, despite the fact that he didn't support the bill in the first place. Reagan famously said that the nine most terrifying words in the English language were, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And you can sort of trace that belief through much of the neoliberal efforts of the last 40 years or so, Democrats and Republicans. And yet now, I think we're beginning to see that shift. People on both sides of the political spectrum are calling out for the government to take active roles in helping people. You know, within climate politics, I think you see that at play in the ways in which the government-heavy Green New Deal has much more broad support than the market-based approach of a price on carbon. More and more people are seeing that industry is not going to save us, and that the only path forward is an active government that is protecting and working in the interests of the public. I 100% agree with you. I'm on board that we need an active government that isn't afraid to spend money in order to help sort of dig us out of these issues like this one right now being being sort of COVID and COVID relief. But when David was talking about what happened in Canada last year when Rogers and Bell and TELUS collected over $240 million from the government's relief program, 
we, we need to dig deeper into how it is that these dollars are being spent, not because I want to put up more red tape when it comes to spending and not because I want to hamstring anybody, but, but because I feel like the government gets itself into this position where I, I know like as an organization that applies for grants and applies for funding, it's like, there's this sort of idea that the government's like, okay, we have this pot of money. We have to get it out the door as soon as possible. Um, so they, they end up going to companies like Rogers and Bell and Telus because Rogers and Bell and Telus can put together really awesome proposals for how they should, how they can spend this money and how it'll be effective from an, an economic standpoint and how it'll result in so much job and so many new jobs and so much growth. And, and, and then ultimately at the end of the day, it's like, okay, who did this help? Who, who did this $240 million really go to support? It, it's related to this issue of, of misspending um, and misallocation of grant money. But it's like something that I was talking to my friends about earlier this week or, or late last week, last week was the fact that like Grimes, who yes, at one point was a Canadian independent artist, is no longer a Canadian independent artist. I believe she, she was signed to like Columbia Records or something like that. And also, as most people know, is is partner to Elon Musk and mother to his child one of his children but like she received a $90,000 Canadian government grant for supporting the arts during the pandemic and not only did she receive this grant she then made crypto art with it and sold that crypto art for 5.8 million dollars so you have $90,000 worth of grant money that was supposed to go towards propping up a full like a a, a not a dying industry by no means is the arts dying but like a a struggling art industry and instead it went to a woman who's worth billions of dollars by relation to the richest man in the world. And then she then made $5.8 million off of it. And I have to, I, like, we have to be, a, we need to be critical of how these dollars are spent, despite the fact that, yes, we all agree they should be spent. Um, and it was, it was something that, that gave me pause because normally I'm, I'm really all for government spending kind of writ large. Um, no holds barred. But in this situation, it's like, I'm, I'm glad the government has been putting a lot of money into COVID recovery, but like, come on guys, who is it? Who is it that's sitting on these grant allocation committees? Also very quickly, crypto art is as bad as Bitcoin and both are destroying the world. Support neither. Come at me if you like, both are bad. What is crypto art? I don't know, but it sounds pretty douchey. Like, oh let's be real. Like not oh. only is it environmentally destructive, like I can't, I can't handle that. Crypto art is basically using the same blockchain technology as Bitcoin does to make you have only one of a kind, I'm doing this in air quotes, of the thing. So you can prove that you own the thing, even though anyone can see it, anyone can experience it. So it's all basically ridiculous. But what that means is, of course, that there's a huge amount of energy going in to constantly keep up this, this proof that this thing is yours. As Kotaku says, crypto art belongs in the trash. Ouch. Yeah. But like, but like the little trash, like yeah. like the little recycling bin <laughs> on my MacBook yeah. desktop, yeah. that trash. Okay. Yeah. And you click it, and it makes a nice little sound, and the art just dissolves. Yeah, I feel really good about it. Petit donner ton cœur à tous les Tom Cruise. Où es-tu resté prise au fond d'une gamme de blues Tout n'est pas réglé comme du papier à musique C'est plus souvent de l'origami 
As-tu besoin d'un ami Toi, tu vois des montagnes à chaque colline tu cherches à retourner dans ta boîte d'origine Et tu replies la carte n'importe comment C'est plus souvent de l'origami As-tu besoin d'un ami Parmi ces inconnus qui te frôlent Cette envie de perdre la tête sur une épaule Thank you. That was Patrice Michaud with a song called Origami. Merci beaucoup. And now back to the Green Majority. Bernadette Jordan and the Department of Fisheries and Oceans has decided that Canada should just continue to be colonial dicks to indigenous people by coming out with a patronizing unilateral document saying that the government will allow Mi'kmaq fishers on the East Coast to have their moderate livelihood fisheries, but only if they operate within the government-recognized season. In 1996, an indigenous man named Donald Marshall Jr. was charged for catching and selling eels out of season. The case went to the Supreme Court, which dropped the charges because First Nations on the East Coast have signed treaties with the government and do not have to simply obey our evolving rules regarding fishing. The court did rule that our government could regulate First Nations fishing if the fishing risked conservation efforts. But that regulation could only happen in concert with those First Nations in order to justify why we were infringing on their rights. The court coined the term moderate livelihood, which meant, as Angel Moore put it for APTN, the Mi'kmaq could make money, but not get rich. But in the 20-plus years since the ruling, our government has not gone any further in defining the parameters of the term moderate livelihood. Last year in the early fall, Mi'kmaq fishers finally started implementing their treaty rights themselves and were met with racist violence from commercial fishers as well as a crackdown from the DFO. 
the new statement from the DFO is ridiculous because it was made without consulting First Nations. Their moderate livelihood fisheries are not going to hurt the salmon stocks. Their tiny boats cannot operate at the height of the official season. And most importantly, we stole all of this land, and we have to stop condescending to First Nations to tell them how to use what's left. I also believe that if our government simply brought in unbiased scientists to review the Mi'kma'ki plan, then we could stop all this nonsense of commercial fishers concerned that First Nations are going to deplete the salmon stocks. Sabiganagadi chief Mike Sack said of the new statement, quote, We've had a firm line that we're not going to accept a DFO license. We're not going to fish in a DFO season that they're trying to outline or impose on us. We have a management plan that is better for conservation than theirs, so we're going to follow our own plan. He told Carol Off of the CBC, quote, We have a community that's in very rough shape, a lot of poverty, and that's what we're looking to accomplish to bring up the standards of life for our people. When she asked him, quote, You know what happened in the violence that ensued and the conflict, and a lot of your own people being threatened. Are you not concerned that that is what's in the future if you don't work with this compromise, I guess, that Ottawa is offering you? Mike Sack replied, quote, So you're saying that we should do what they say, or they're going to have mobs of people take us out? Like, shouldn't all Canadians be aware or afraid of that? A month and a half ago, I was threatened. The RCMP didn't do anything about it, so we'll see how the spring goes. Last week, we spoke about predatory delay when it comes to climate change. But I think it extends here as well. Because, you know, the Canadian government has a long history of delay when it comes to identifying the rights of Indigenous peoples. You know, the story here is 20 years of ignoring the right to fish for moderate livelihood, but we see the same thing happening out west with the Wet'suwet'en in regards to the Canadian government dragging its feet on recognizing the land claim of the hereditary chiefs, and again in the slow pace of solving boil water advisories uh, on indigenous reserves across Canada. Again and again, this delay and deflection are used as colonial tools of the state. Yeah, at the top of the show, we were talking about how disappointed and upset we would be if there was uh, to be an election called in the springtime. But um, to be honest, if an election meant that Bernadette Jordan was voted out of her riding um, and she could no longer act as uh, minister of uh, DFO, like that wouldn't be a bad thing. And I'm not saying writ large that Bernadette Jordan is a bad person or a bad minister or a bad MP. But what I am saying is that the Department of Fisheries and Oceans Minister, the Minister of the Minister of the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, should be somebody who is um, a little more understanding and respectful of and empathetic with um, rights holders and indigenous communities um, in coastal regions. Um, yeah, that's kind of all I actually have to say about that. I don't want to dig myself into a hole of insulting a minister or anything like that, but. Um, yeah, she has really demonstrated um, how willing she is to cater to the needs and wants of industry as opposed to supporting either A, what is good for the fishery, um, B, what is good for the wildlife within that fishery, or C, um, what is good for the indigenous rights holders within a given fishery or as they pertain to a given fishery.
an indigenous land defender named Stacy Gallagher has been sentenced to 90 days in jail for performing a ceremony along the route of the government-owned Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline. An injunction has been in place since 2018, making it illegal for anyone to obstruct the route. Vice News reports that the terms of the injunction state that the RCMP have to tell people uh, they will be charged and give them an opportunity to leave, but in this case Gallagher, along with Jim Layden, were not given that opportunity and were charged weeks after they were there. The judge in the case refused to acknowledge that the offenders were on unceded Coast Salish lands. APTN recently interviewed the Braided Warriors, who had been violently removed by police for occupying an insurance office in protest against Trans Mountain. A warrior from the Sequepunk Nation said, quote, We wish to see abolishment of all police forces on all native lands, to return to natural law, to indigenous law. We have our own systems of governance and law, and we want to revitalize them, and we will revitalize them. We want an immediate termination and shutdown of Trans Mountain's operations, and we want the immediate withdrawal of all the insurance companies and financiers backing Trans Mountain in order to achieve this shutdown. A 350.org activist pointed out something important online last week, right around the time that the Brady Warriors were blockading a port in Vancouver in support of Stacey Gallagher, noting that they had been charged and convicted of the same quote-unquote crime um, when they were a part of a TMX protest a couple years previously, and they received no jail time. And which begs the question, you know, why does the state find indigenous ceremony as more dangerous than activist protest? And to me, the only answer uh, can be that they fear the power of indigenous title. You've hit the nail on the head there. It's um, the only reason that the state would view indigenous land defense um, and what we would call protest as more as more dangerous than a young white settler protesting is because the the weight and the importance of indigenous land defense is truly a threat to the state in in the way that that a young white activist just isn't for better or for worse. And and that's why we see this retaliation from the state this way is because real indigenous sovereignty is threatening to the colonial state as it should be. So obviously no nobody is happy to see this person uh Stacy Gallagher uh be sentenced to prison by no means am i saying that's a good thing but what but i don't know perhaps the the continuation of this fight and the fact that the government does take it as seriously as it does and and is clearly as threatened as it is is a good indication of not change to come in in like the happy easy political virtue signaling sense but in sort of the more revolutionary sense The Birch Narrows Dene First Nation in northern Saskatchewan is demanding that the Toronto company Baseload Energy Corp. leave its territory since it started exploring for uranium without their consent. 
According to Michael Bramadat Wilcock for Turtle Island News, the province gave the company a permit to survey the land before community consultations had finished. Elder advisor and trapper Ron Desjardins briefly set up a blockade, and the company responded with corporate speak, patronizingly acted like their workers were at risk of violence, and attacked Desjardins' character. Desjardins said that the government, after creating the duty to consult, passed this duty on to industry, which has a conflict of interest because it obviously wants the resources for profit. Saskatchewan's official policy on consultation even explicitly states that they do not recognize any title First Nations may claim to lands or resources. Desjardins said that NextGen Energy Limited was an example of a company that had proceeded respectfully. He said they didn't rush things and didn't impose their timelines on the First Nation. According to CTV Saskatoon, Chief Bobby Cameron of the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations said, quote, Saskatchewan has no authority to authorize permits without engaging with the nation and without providing the nation with the opportunity to provide input. Stay off our lands unless given consent by the First Nation. Imagine a bulldozer coming in and ripping up the gravestones of your dead relatives and ruining the graveyard with no questions asked, and you might be able to imagine what has just happened to the Shishal Nation in B.C. An ancient burial site with graves that potentially went back as far as 2,000 years has been logged and desecrated by some random logging company in B.C., even though the area was supposedly protected by the province. In a statement about planned mining developments in Ontario, President of the Anishinaabe Business Professional Association, Jason Rasevich, is quoted by Sam Lascaris for Windspeaker.com as saying, quote, It must be acknowledged that the 15 proposed mining projects that are planned for the next decade are on the ancestral, inherent, customary, traditional lands of many First Nations in northwestern Ontario, and that their free, prior, informed consent will be required before any development proceeds. And the RCMP are still patrolling Wet'suwet'en territory, and security guards are harassing community members who are holding ceremonies near the work camps of the Coastal GasLink pipeline. The liquid natural gas pipeline is now one-third complete after police were used to force it through unceded Wet'suwet'en land. thrashing and majestic Magpie River in Quebec is now officially a person. It was, of course, always a person, but now the regional municipality and the local Innu Council have adopted resolutions that legally recognize the river's personhood, meaning that it could launch lawsuits of its own to protect itself against pollution and development. According to the National Observer, the Innu have declared that the river has, quote, the right to flow, the right to respect for its cycles, the right for its natural evolution to be protected and preserved, 
the right to maintain its natural biodiversity, the right to fulfill its essential functions within its ecosystem, the right to maintain its integrity, the right to be safe from pollution, the right to regenerate and be restored, and the right to sue. The provincial government has not yet recognized these rights, possibly because they want to leave it open for hydroelectricity sometime in the future. Thank you for listening to The Green Majority. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And thank you so much to everyone who's already donating. Peace. So happy to be rejoined uh, by Emma McIntosh from the National Observer to dive once again back into this weird world of the Doug Ford government and developers, because things keep happening. So thank you so much for joining us, Emma. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. You know, zoning orders, more like zoning disorder. Am I right? Haha. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> we have been talking with you about this topic on the show for almost to a year now. I think we're about a month or two away from when we first talked about it on the show. And so for those of people who have not listened to all our last year of shows, A, go do that. And B, maybe you can provide a, a brief summary of our past conversation. Sure, sure. So I guess maybe to start, we should explain what exactly is going on. Um, and that is that the Ford government is using this mechanism called a ministerial zoning order. Basically, that's like a big old fast forward button for a development. So all like the normal impact assessment studies or like, you know, all those boring things that are really important, all that speed through it. You can just do this project, green light, go ahead. Sometimes there are other permits that are going to be required at other stages, but that skips over most of it. So other governments use this handful of times per year, maybe mostly for things that were an emergency or like pretty much uncontroversial. So they're not necessarily evil. The problem is that right now the Ford government is using them for a lot of things that are controversial and that critics say should have received a full assessment on every front. And, and that's the problem. This issue started to get some attention in the spring, so almost a year ago, when, you know, after COVID really hit, the four governments started using flurries of them. Fast forward a little bit to November, it really started to heat up because the four government used one of these orders to approve a development to go on top of a sensitive protected wetland where you're really not allowed to do that. And so that's kind of the opposition that has led us to this point today. At some point along the, the journey to today, I, I looked into the backgrounds of these projects and their environmental impact. I found 14 out of like 38 that had environmental issues and 
of those nine were awarded to people who had donated to Doug Ford. So a lot of critics allege that these are basically handouts to Doug Ford's developer friends, people who supported him in the past. The government denies that. They say donations didn't play a role, but they also say that this is like an economic benefit, right? That, that these are being used to create jobs or in some cases, affordable housing or even like long-term care spaces. If that sounds like a lot, it's, it is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. And so, so where we had left it last time was that there were sort of these questions about the amount of money that had come in from these developers who then were issued M- MZOs. Conservatives saying it's not Im- improper. Other people are being like, maybe it is improper, but that was sort of where we left it. But since then, a lot has happened. And it feels like to me, like the, the Doug Corbin has not only doubled, maybe tripled down on some of these things. So I wonder if you can sort of tell us what has happened since you released that report. Yeah, I'd even take it one step further and say they might have quadrupled because I think they doubled down in December. Maybe even quintupled. Well, wow. we'll let the audience decide. So a couple of big things happened in the last week. So you thought the MZO power was already pretty strong and pretty powerful. These things aren't appealable. So like they definitely are powerful. The government on March 4th introduced a new bill that would allow them to actually expand those powers even more. And this is the second time they've done that in the last couple of months. They also did that in December. So now, basically, if this bill passes, the government no longer has to abide by any planning rules when it's issuing an MZO. There's this master planning document, which has like the most boring name ever. It's called the Provincial Policy Statement. But it's so important. It lays out all of these environmental protections and all these rules for just good practice when we're planning new developments. And the bill essentially says, yeah, that doesn't matter. If we're issuing an MZO, we don't have to listen to any of that. And not only that, it's retroactive. So we never had to listen to it. And developments that broke those rules, as long as they had an MZO, were always allowed. And the best part is they buried this in a bill about the internet, Bill 257. And so it's been hilarious to watch like the debate over this happen in the legislature in the last couple of days, because usually what happens is someone gets up and says like, how can you do this? This is so horrible. And then someone from the PC side gets up and says, why do you hate the internet so much? Why change the rules again? What the, what the bill seems to do other than do this massive expansion of, uh, of ministerial power is it would seemingly allow the government to evade a lawsuit. And this revolves around that controversial case we talked about earlier, where a warehouse would go on top of a protected wetland. That project is called Durham Live. Uh, We've talked about it before because it's it's a massive deal. Basically, um, the government is allowing developers who donated thousands of dollars to the PC party to build this like massive casino entertainment complex with a warehouse attached. And that warehouse is is the part that is the the problem for a lot of critics. People are mad about this. There have been protests there pretty regularly since November over it. The the zoning order was issued in October. So it's been going on for quite a while. But the problem is that that really boring provincial policy statement, which is so important, 
uh, includes this line that says you can't develop on top of protected wetlands. And you remember how I said sometimes projects need other permits. Well, one of those other permits was going to come from the Toronto and Region Conservation Authority. And they came out and said, no way, like this clashes with the provincial policy statement. We're not going to do it. Absolutely not. The government changed the rules in December so that they can force the TRCA to say yes. So at the same time that they're introducing this bill, they also issued one of those orders saying, hey, you got to do this. And then going back to the lawsuit, because the MZO clashes with the provincial policy statement, a bunch of environmental groups had fired, uh, filed this lawsuit asking a judge to basically overturn the whole thing, saying that it goes against the rules. But if the bill goes through and it was always allowed, that central point of the lawsuit is pretty much moot. And in fact, like I and a, some other reporters got a hold of this internal government briefing where they pretty much said like, yeah, we're going to change this law and that will help us avoid this lawsuit. It's not the only lawsuit that they could face over this. There might be other issues. That same legal brief mentioned that because the government did not consult the Williams Treaty's First Nations in the area, those First Nations could file their own judicial review application on like the grounds of lack of consultation. But yeah, so in, in one fell swoop, basically, or maybe two half fell swoops, they managed to clear these two major hurdles standing in the way of the Durham Live project. And now we're talking on March 10th. In two days, the Conservation Authority has to issue the permit for this project. So really the government has been working to like shove all these obstacles out of the way and let this one thing go ahead. Yeah, which begs the question why, which I think we've got into previously. So we'll come back to sort of how people are fighting this in a second, because uh, I think that's really important. But I also want to just note that this is also not all that they are doing in that they also passed even more MZOs. Yeah, the government actually handed down six more MZOs Monday night. And hilariously enough, the website where these are posted went down for a couple of hours on Tuesday morning, and it was down again today. So it's, you know, not suspicious at all. Just kidding. I'm sure, I'm sure it was an accident. But it was a bit frustrating to get some information. So with these six MZOs that are brand new, we see the same pattern that everyone is already mad about. I took a look at them. Three are environmentally sensitive. And those three all went to the same progressive conservative donor. It's this company, Flato Developments, and their founder uh, has donated thousands to the PCs. He's also donated a bit to the liberals and to the NDP, but you know, there you are. And if anyone was wondering whether Doug Ford might be taking some of the public criticism over this seriously, he made it very clear in the legislature on Tuesday that he is not. The quote was, we will never stop issuing MZOs, end quote. So uh, he also said he's proud of them and kind of talked about those economic benefit pieces. So it's really like a, an age old struggle, right? I feel like it's the same thing we always talk about. It's like these questions of economic benefit and environmental protection. It's worth questioning whether that's a real binary or whether that's a false binary, but there you go. Yeah. And to be so cavalier about it, while so many people are sort of stepping up and fighting back, every once in a while, I think you find a politician's thing, which they are like, I'm going to go down with the ship on this. 
there are some topics where some politicians are just like, I care enough about this thing that it's willing. And sometimes they're good things and sometimes they're not. It's kind of interesting that Doug Ford's thing apparently is trampling local rights on development. That's the thing. He's like, I don't care. I'm doing it. I'm proud of it. Let's go. He would argue with you over that. He would say, if if I was Doug Ford, be saying that most of these MZOs, except for the ones that were applied to provincially owned land already, most of them were requested by the local municipality. And then there's another argument there because municipal politicians can be lobbied just as much as provincial ones can. They can also get donations to their campaign. Many of them have. And, you know, municipal politicians don't always act out the will of their constituents, just like provincial politicians don't always do that. Right. So that's that's just the argument. But totally fair. So let's talk about then what the people who live in these areas are feeling. Obviously, there, yeah, as you mentioned, there's been protests in the Durham Live situation. There have been other protests. So, so how are communities fighting back on this? Yeah, I think we've had enough of these now that communities have been upset about that there's kind of this playbook emerging. And I wrote about this earlier this month, even a week ago, which seems like a year ago. And uh, a couple communities have managed to fight these things off. Maybe we should talk about Stratford, which is kind of one of the tastiest ones. So Stratford, for those of you who do not live in Southern Ontario, is uh, near London, Ontario. It's way down there. And the town council there had asked for a ministerial zoning order to allow this glass factory by a Chinese company named uh, Shinyi. And uh, it was like a $400 million project, and they were all hyped about the, like, these new jobs. But when, when the news got out and the MZO got approved, the residents were like pretty furious, uh, all things considered. And their, their quibbles were with the environmental impact of the factory, uh, specifically like the, the air emissions that would come from it and its use of water. Uh, basically, the factory was like making float glass, which is used for windows, and it just, it, it's very intensive with water because you literally have to float the glass on water. And a similar proposal by the same company was, was killed by the township of Guelph, Aramosa, not that far away, over the water issue. So people started organizing. They, they cranked their pressure up really, really high. A couple of groups banded together. They relied on experience from other more experienced environmental activists, specifically ones around like Wellington, Ontario, who'd already dealt with with similar issues before. And they just started protesting it like mad. Like they were out there every weekend. And then when Ontario went into lockdown, they had a couple volunteers show up at City Hall every day. And, you know, by December, the mayor was like, I regret doing this. I would take it back if I could. I wish I had not done this. And then Shinny actually pulled out of the factory. They said that they were tired of having their reputation dragged through the mud and they were done. This is like a tricky situation for the municipality now because that order really only authorized a glass factory. They can't actually legally put anything else on that land anymore. So um, the council asked for the province to revoke the order. And today... Just this very morning, the municipal affairs minister confirmed that he's going to start that process. So that's like the one MZO that has been killed after it was passed. So that was, that was a big, big victory for those activists. And I think like their, their model of basically forming a coalition, getting politicians who are more inclined to hear them out on their side and then just 
cranking the pressure up as high as possible. That's kind of what everyone's doing. Similar technique is going on in Pickering around Durham Live. And another group in Simcoe County, so more north of Toronto, a couple hours north, they have been using that technique successfully as well. They managed to get a proposal that would go onto another protected wetland. They managed to get that completely stopped in its tracks, and now it's going to go through the normal process. And what's notable about it for me, too, is that a lot of this is coming from PC areas, like places where the the local MPP is a Tory. I think it's an interesting study in building a, a broad coalition, not just among like leftists or like hardcore environmentalists, but, you know, with a broader community. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for keeping us updated on the story and for tracking it down as it continues these twists and turns. I will be totally honest. I did not expect to talk this much in my life about the words ministerial zoning order. And yet here we are. Thank you so much, Emma. Anything people should be following on the story in the next couple of weeks or anything left that you sort of want to make sure people catch? Keep an eye out for the permit that will be issued Friday for Durham Live. And keep an eye out for when the Ford government passes this new bill. If they don't wait 30 days, they are breaking the Environmental Bill of Rights because they're supposed to consult on it for 30 days. So I'll be watching that. They've done it before and, and who knows whether they'll do it this time. But I think there's also more MZOs in the pipeline to, to watch for. So hopefully I can keep you updated on that. Please do. I'm McIntosh from the National Observer. Thank you so much as always and have a wonderful day. Right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week. It's not easy.